Here is David Littlejohn with True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. All right, gang, it is that time of the week. We are stoked to have you joining us on the True Wealth Radio Show, the best Tuesday you've had all week, and in studio with me. Matt Dixon. Matt. I'm fired up. I'm ready to go. I don't know what I'm fired up for, but I'm here and I'm ready. I'm just happy that the market's finished in the green, man. That's enough to get me excited. Are you breathing a little bit, buddy? I know, right? There's, it's just been... Except for Walmart. We can't get... <laughs> I know, except for Walmart. Everything was green except for Walmart. Well, and, and this is probably the... Uh, this is the here's the theme of the show right out of the gate right when is it good news when is good news good and when is bad news bad when is good news bad or bad news good you know right? that's gonna There's make like for a really square. long title tomorrow the, when i post yeah, the podcast so like if you could drew the drew, draw the graphic in your mind it's like take a take a big draw a box in your mind and then just draw a big x in it right now make it perpendicular not like a like a plus sign in the like box. a four pane window yeah for that's the best way to describe it right there four pane window part of a tic-tac-toe board whatever and <laughs> you've got like good equals good bad equals bad good equals bad and bad equals good right it's probably only three squares if you use the transitive properties right because yeah. good equals bad you don't need to say and bad equals good because it's implied and that never mind. We're you just blew someone's brain up, right? Like they were driving, they heard all of this, and their brain just imploded, just like that. Yep. And all of a sudden, it's, there's, there's a it's black a hole between your up. ears, sucking everything outside in. It's yep. just a problem. Why, Matt? Am I even bringing this up? It came up in our investment committee, by the way. Do, it you, did. do you recall that? Uh, briefly, yeah, I, I'm not quite sure what we were talking about, but so I think this you're is another advisor me. on the call, and he brought up the kind of the question of how oh. much has the market priced in? Yeah, right, and and that's another thing. These are you know we probably don't talk about this enough in terms of helping our listeners who are sort of the do-it-yourself investor, and you're trying to think through some of the concepts uh, that market pros think through right and one of them is the the always sort of present in the back of our mind but still nagging because we can't really believe it theory of the efficient market hypothesis okay okay now for those of you that just are talking like the black hole in your brain thing again you're mm -hmm. like oh no what just happened okay the efficient market hypothesis is this idea that posits that the stock market knows everything possible about what is going on in the economy and an individual stock. Like everything's already priced in when you get there at that moment. Like all the information has already been priced and in. And it kind of almost makes sense because how many times have you ever heard someone say, you know, I thought this was happening and then I was a day behind it, right? right. Well, and here's the thing is if the information here's why i struggle with this right there's some people that believe in like the strong theory mm -hmm. and the weak theory okay. and then there are others that think it's totally nonsense right so the idea though is does you, if the market knows everything here's the question that you you say if it knows everything mm -hmm. then it means the price is right right now so it means the very next piece of information that gets known though is that enough to radically change the price, right? Walmart falls by almost 11% today mm -hmm. in one day. 
right? It basically rolls back its price by a year, right? It erases an entire year's worth of uh, gains. So it'd be like stepping back in time to June of last year to have the value of Walmart. So you could have bought it a year ago, waited until now, and you're right back where you started. Mm-hmm. What was different yesterday than today that all of a sudden makes Walmart 11% less valuable and changes its valuation on paper by billions? Yeah. I mean, that really is a valid question. I mean, yeah, some news comes out that their shipping costs are higher and is cutting into profit margins, but does it instantly make them worth that much less? Well, and the efficient market hypothesis would say, well, sure, because it, it just did. Yeah. Right? And this is where I go, maybe the market gets a you little- You saying it like overreacts? Yeah, maybe it gets out over its skis. I love that analogy, by the way. Uh, but maybe it just gets ahead of itself. And maybe it's wrong. I mean, well, it's clearly well, not wrong because that's what the supply and demand curve is willing to do today. But stay with me. Okay. I'm going to make a case. All right. The case is it also depends on how many people are willing to play the game the day the price is decided. Okay. Right. Think of it this way. If you have a charity auction event. I get invited to these pretty regularly. Okay. And you have a whole bunch of people bidding on something. Is the price is more likely to go up quickly if lots mm -hmm. of interest is there. Right. Okay. Only a few people, it may or may not go up. But it turns out it doesn't matter how many people are there bidding on it as long as there are more than one and it's the right two people and they really want it. Right, all it takes is two people in a bidding war to drive the price up, mm -hmm. so go back and forth and back and forth, right? And the price goes higher and higher and higher. Now, the real question is, if you do something like that with very low participation in the markets, so very low trading volume, but very very aggressive buyers, the price can move pretty radically. Hmm. But the next day, everybody shows up to the auction. Okay. And the people from the day before have to sell. Now, they don't really have to sell. That's not what's going on. But other people own the same stuff, right? In the stock market, lots of people own it. So all we really know about Walmart is the last trade of the day when the market's closed, closed at that price. But what I don't know is when the market opens tomorrow, does somebody look at that and go, that is a heck of a bargain. I better buy it right now because... Walmart is going to make a bunch more money, and 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 they may literally be guessing. And all they're guessing at is, do I think that Walmart management and the employees and the consumers and all that are involved in it have the chops for that company to be more profitable in the future than it is today? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you look at some of these major institutions that trade on huge volume. You have to wonder about, were they trading on it? Or, you know... I mean, was it one major company that decided they wanted to reduce their weightings on the yeah. news? Like, I mean, it's an index fund, like an yeah. index changes composition, and so it's yeah. a forced liquidation because it's a mechanical sell. Yep. Right. Yeah, those are all different things. We talked before about like the idea of the plumbing of the markets, how mm -hmm. things are connected behind the scenes. It's like the, uh, you know, behind the walls of your house, there's plumbing and electrical, and 
maybe other stuff in there, right? Well, that a few dead what, mice. Yeah, whatever that stuff is, you know, the market has it too, and it's how it's connecting and making the things go. So, Walmart's an interesting one because we could have the same conversation about Facebook. By the mm -hmm. way, none of these are recommendations, right? I'm, I hope it didn't sound like that. We're just talking about different examples. Facebook fell a ton from mm -hmm. its highs. It was over three hundred dollars a share. It's down to closer to two hundred and something dollars right now. Yeah, barely over. Still 200. trying to figure how to get out of the hole that it's mm -hmm. in. So in that case, one might argue from the efficient market hypothesis that, and the market's totally got it right. It didn't bounce right back. I think the key there is the word hypothesis. Indeed. Yeah, I mean, because we really don't know. We we don't. And now, if you're out there saying to yourself, and here's the real question, so great, it's all just a gamble anyway, Ooh. right? Is it? Is it really just a gamble? I think Warren Buffett would say, hmm, not really. So I don't think that it's just a gamble. You know why? Yes, I'm putting on the headphones. Oh, I'm going to leave us on a Yeah, I'll totally yeah. do it. Oh. We'll take a break. Feeling feisty. And when we come back, I want to talk about why... I don't think the stock market is a gamble. Okay. But first, these important profit messages. <laughs> Stick around. We'll be right back. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. And you're listening to True Wealth on 93.9 FM and 1240 KQEN. All right. We're back, ladies and gentlemen. And if you're just getting caught up, how do they do it? Better go to the podcast tomorrow. Right. And yep. it'll be available all over. You know why? Because this, I post yeah, it. Yeah, this guy. <laughs> <laughs> Matt's, thank you, Matt, for uh -huh. keeping everybody plugged in here. All right. Why is why do some people think the stock market is gambling? And, Matt, do you think the stock market is gambling? Well, it depends on how you invest. If you just buy a bunch of speculative stuff and say, I'm going to get rich in six months, then it's probably gambling. But if you invest like a long-term investor... Um, and follow some guidelines and some general rules, I think it's more of an investment. Okay. Well, what if I just pick a bunch of terrible stuff and I lose all my money? Did you sell it or do you still own it? <laughs> it's actually not even a trick question. Like, you could, you can invest badly. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, you really, uh, and, and you, I mean, you can also speculate and get really lucky. Uh, yep. Speculation oftentimes is gambling. It's not always, right? But, but, how? What do you think is a good way to distinguish between gambling and investing? Well, first of all, I'm just going to go straight to the meat here and be like, if you go to a financial professional, right, a fiduciary, right. and say, I want to invest and I want to invest long term, and I'm not going to do silly things like pull my money out, put it back in all the time, and you just want to stay invested and back your risk off a little bit until you retire, the odds of you being okay are pretty darn good. Do you realize you just snuck in, in my opinion at least, the answer to the question? No, I don't. But tell you find the answer in there. Yeah. I threw a lot on the table. The odds. Right? Mm. When you are gambling, you know that the odds are not in your favor when you start. Right. Right? I mean the house they the the reason they say the house always wins is because the odds favor the house. Now there are some people that are professional gamblers, and what they're really doing is they are trying to manipulate the outcomes or the probabilities through their own behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. um, the example would be counting cards, 
Okay, not supposed to do it in a casino, and you know why? Because if you're capable of doing it, you're you can assess odds. when the odds yeah. are in your favor. And the house says, we're not interested in having you do that because gamblers are supposed to lose to us. Mm-hmm. Right? They're supposed to win just enough to think they have a chance, but if they play long enough, they lose. Right? That's the issue. And it's because the odds favor the casino. And there's also another issue in gambling, right? Especially when you're talking about the casino. And I'm not trashing casinos when I say this. This is just how it works, right? Is in theory, they have way deeper pockets than you, Mm -hmm. right? Because the casino can keep gambling with chips and sort of double down, double down, double down. And it's very, very hard to break the house by having an incredible sequence of returns where you just, you know, if you could win every single time and double your money every time you did it and do it 500 times in a row or something, yeah, you'll wipe them out. Actually, less than that. Probably you could do it about 40 times and you'll wipe them out. In fact, really less than that because I think the story, how many, how many, all right, what is there, 64 on a chessboard? Is that it? Ooh. Right? And I mean, there's the story about, yeah. you know, how much should I get paid? And it's like, well, just put a grain of rice on the first uh, square in a ch- in a chessboard. And then on the next square, double it. And on the th- one after oh, that, yeah. double it. Just keep doubling it. Yep. And, th- you know, they said, sure, it sounds like a great idea. And then when they did the math, they were like, oh, my gosh, that's more rice than exists. Mm-hmm. You can't do that. So you could bankrupt the casino if you had a sequence of returns that you just doubled it every time and never missed. Yep. Uh, you know, and probably you'd only take, you know, 15 times or something. Just double your money every time. Boom, boom, boom. Here's what'll happen. The house won't do it, right? They size the bet. Well, and they limit the amount that can be on the table. That's what I mean. Right. They yeah. size yeah. the bet, right? Mm-hmm. They will not allow you to double down every time beyond a certain size because it puts them in a problem position. Otherwise, you know, you could borrow enough money to, to theoretically come in. Can't, I think in Vegas you can... You can find some tables. You can high, find very high table stakes yeah. for sure. But even then, they're it, probably they're not so, going to let you clean them completely out. Right. Yeah. You know, they still say, hey, million dollar table limits. Okay. But it's not like, well, if I miss the table limit, goes to two million now and mm-hmm. then four million and then, you know, eight million and 16 million. They're like, no, no, we don't do $16 million bets here. We do $1 million bets. And you're going to have to win three or four in a row to, to climb out of this hole. Mm-hmm. And they're like, and we know that it's statistically hard for that to happen. But if you had a system where you could more accurately predict when the odds were in your favor, you would disadvantage the house. That's why they don't allow it. Counting cards effectively allows you to do that. If you know, what the odds look like. You can change your bet size. You can, you know, like I'm not a gambler, just so everybody's aware. But one of the, I, but I have gambled before. One of the most interesting games I ever played was uh, two deck blackjack that allowed you to surrender if you didn't like the odds on the table and you could take half your bet back. You just abandon half your bet. Mm. That was a really fascinating game because the payout structure, uh, blackjack was still two to one, uh, but there were other elements at play here where the odds were different. And I remember I sat down, I probably played for about 90 minutes uh, on about a $50 hand and then walked away, walked away still with the same money I started with and felt like it was a total victory against the house <laughs> just for computing just odds. and coming out even. Yeah, it was, it was really a fun process for me 
to try to math out the odds. And with only two decks, I'm not savant enough to actually count cards, mm-hmm. but I could do some basic point systems like right. face cards and tens, you know, kind of do plus minus plus minus mm-hmm. and get a sense of, well, where's the, the shoe leaning based on what's shown up on the table? And it was really interesting. I hate gambling with my wife. I'm just going to throw it out there because every time we've gone and played black, you should deck, not bet your wife, uh, right? <laughs> I'm out of money. I got no other options here, <laughs> but we, we'd go to the casino and you know, She's the luckiest person you'll ever meet. She'll win 10 hands in a row consistently almost every time we go out. And she'll do ridiculous things like she'll get a 17. Oh, you know, hit me with another card. It's like, no, no, no. Like the odds say you need to just stand right where you're at. I just feel like I need another one. Oh, 21. There you go. And it it just blows your mind. She does things you shouldn't do. Yet she always wins. I can't. Yeah, can't well, describe it any other way. Then, if they figure that out, and she really is a statistical anomaly that she is lucky, right? They'll kick her out. Yeah, they. <laughs> well, but but she doesn't probably gamble enough for that. No, to ever, she for doesn't. Them to figure it I out, give right? her like forty bucks, and I'm like, hey, I don't like losing money. <laughs> yeah, well, then then you're cut out to be a financial advisor. There we right? go. And and it really it does. It comes back to this whole odds making issue, though, right? Mm-hmm. Um, investing, you shouldn't start with the odds against you. Right? Really shouldn't. I would never have been, I wouldn't buy an investment where I felt like the odds of me being successful were lower than the odds of me being unsuccessful. Right. Right. I want really good odds out of the gate. I should have a very compelling reason to believe this will work. And then I want the numbers to reinforce that too. So when you said, well, there's these rules and odds, and mm-hmm. what you said is you do the rules and then the odds look better. The, over the long run. I mean, right. Well, yeah, because the odds are what we care about, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, would a casino exist if the odds were not in its favor? And I hope your next point is, would 401k plans and the stock market still be in existence if all you ever did was lose money? Well, uh, yeah. The reason I asked the first question is because the answer is, should, you should have been saying no, mm. right? Because if the odds weren't in favor. But I think you ask it, that's a really interesting question. Right. Mm-hmm. If you only lost money, here's the real question: What does that say about the economy at large when all of the companies that you're investing in are considered less valuable than they were when you started? Mm-hmm. Always. That and you, means you're talking like, like businesses a, don't yeah. succeed. Yeah. Right. So you have a, an environment where who would start a business? If, it's like a casino, right? You wouldn't run a casino if the odds were against you. Why would you start the business if you couldn't keep it going? Yeah. I mean, you make a good point. And so that's the thing about investing that we need to sometimes ground ourselves in. Like right now, look around. I'm not going to sugarcoat this one. It is rough. Yeah. Okay? I mean, a lot of stuff's 20 percent off. Yeah. Inflation as the government's willing to fess up to it, running over 8%. I just drove past the gas station on the way here. It's over $5 a gallon. I had neighbors that sent me pictures from California where gas was approaching $7 a gallon. Yikes. Okay. Diesel fuel was now at a point when we talked about Walmart earlier. Mm-hmm. The speculation as to why that stock is being punished is because fuel prices are so high it's cannibalizing Walmart's already thin margins. Like mm. they sell with very little margin in their product. They just go for volume. They go tons of volume and and Walmart has some of the best infrastructure for like order management and fulfillment in existence. Mm. Right? 
In the known universe, Walmart is near the top of the food chain. Just because the system knows when it's low, when it needs to reorder, right? how to get it there efficiently. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Walmart's got its own, uh, you know, Amazon has grown a lot of it out, but Walmart was the pioneer. I've said this before, too, that Walmart to me is one of the most natural and threatening competitors to Amazon. 100%. Right. I mean, what else really lives in that space? I mean, eBay doesn't. No, eBay's kind of shifted because it, you know, it used to be an online garage sale, and yeah. now there's all these vendors on there, and you're like, yeah, but is eBay really better than Amazon or AliExpress or mm -hmm. a million other places, Shopify, or wherever else you're going to go to get stuff? Right. I don't know. I mean, the Internet's sort of wild westy about that stuff. Amazon, I feel like Amazon and Walmart just carry a higher level of trust with the product that they're selling. And I think that goes a long ways. Well, and I think a lot of it's because there is a viable return policy where the customer feels mm -hmm. protected. Yeah. But but the the point is that when we talk about the price of fuel, it's impacting both of these companies, and it's evident in their stock prices, yeah. well off their highs. Big time. Right? And these are companies that in the retail space, a couple things. First of all, they're in retail. Mm-hmm. Okay? Let's think about this sec for, for a second. If everything in your life costs more, what will you as a consumer do? Go to places where you can get product cheaper. Right. You will adjust your behavior. Mm-hmm. Right. You will do what's famously known in economics as substitution. Right. Right. So in theory, you know, a company like Walmart might see more volume because people are really trying to make each dollar span a little bit further. So they might see more volume, but you also might see what people buy shift. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, the joke is, you know, you go from steak to, you know, burgers to chicken to. Hey, I, ex dogs I experienced that here. this weekend. I was at Costco and we were looking at beef and I'm like, I'm not paying it. I'm just not. I looked at the price and I said, I'm not going to pay that. Yeah, and then I went over and I looked at the pork loin and I'm like, hey, this right. is like a fifth of the cost. We're going to eat pork. It's not my favorite, but it's going to go a long ways and I'm going to eat it. Right. Make some pork tacos. We'll be just fine. And that is a very real example of substitution and why it happens mm -hmm. and why the prices are so high. Um I got to tell you that so much of this is going to be informed by people's politics. It's it's frustrating to me because people right. will, will blame things that are that's a stretch, right? You know, well it's expensive because Jeff Bezos needs a bigger yacht. Like, uh, I don't know that that's why it's expensive. Um, but and if you don't know who Jeff Bezos is, look him up. It'll be fun. <laughs> There's a lot of things at play here, but you know when you have wars that disrupt the ability to get goods and services from one part of the world to another. Yeah, I mean... Okay? That's part of it. That's the supply chain, right? The inputs, the things. If you want to build a widget and you need different parts, you have to order those parts from places. If some of the parts can't come, you can't finish your widget, so you can't mail it out either. Yeah. Go try to get a car right now, right? Everything's expensive, and there's a line waiting for most of them because can't get the parts to get them built. I mean, baby formula. You shut down one of the largest factories in the U.S., you're going to have a shortage. Right. Now, and, they did just open it back up, but yeah. Right. And, and regardless, it may have been a perfectly legitimate reason, right? Yeah, they had good reason, but <laughs> yeah. I mean, it still, but it's still jacked, a, it yeah. jacked up the supply chain. Okay. Gasoline right now, 
mm-hmm. part of the reason that it's so expensive is because of the issue of demand for a strong economy. And yes, the economy is still on paper very strong. Mm-hmm. But but you- it's now facing massive headwinds. Fuel prices at you know diesel prices at po- approaching six dollars a gallon when a year ago they were closer to three. That's double the cost to ship your product. So if shipping was fifteen percent of the the cost of your product previously, it's now thirty. Right? Yep. You either raise the price of your product so that you can stay in business, or you cannibalize the margin in your business. Okay, that's that's how this stuff works. And so we as consumers just look at it and go, "Gosh, why is everything so expensive?" And you go, "Well, it starts with the fact that you can't. You know, farmers got to put diesel in tractors." Fertilizer costs went up thirty percent. They gotta, you can't get it. Yeah, right. A bunch of the fertilizer came out of Russia. Yeah, and you can't get it right now. Right. And so, what are you going to do? You have to raise your prices. And so, that's the hard part. Where it's like I'm watching the Fed hike interest rates, right? But inflation. I mean, how can you really curb it when when we're faced with what we're faced? Yeah. So here's the question, right? Is if the the Fed's raising rates while everything's getting more expensive. How much of this is the market priced in? That's an interesting question. Right. Let's talk about that after this next obscene Okay, let's break. do it. Stick around. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. And you're listening to True Wealth on News Radio 93.9 FM and 1240 KQEN. All right, gang. Welcome back to the True Wealth Show. Dave Littlejohn in studio with... Matt Dixon. Matt. Yeah. I know we were... T- so it happens is in the middle of these breaks, we, then get, we have to remember what we were talking about before the break because we go off on these rabbit trails. Mm-hmm. What were we talking about? Well, we were kind of leaning into what stagflation looks like. Oh, yeah, that was it. I think it was uh, what, yeah, what was the market priced in? I think that was the last question, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. What has the market started to price in? And, and let me be very clear this isn't a knowable answer. This is us taking a shot in the yeah. dark. Well, an educated shot in the yeah, dark. Yeah, I mean it's an it's an educated guess, but it's not a knowable answer. And that is, if there is one thing that I could teach investors right now, without calling this advice, but if I could give counsel to people, it is, folks look for an answer, as if there is some way to decode the market, and if yeah. you just knew all the variables, that you could say it will do this. And I, what true. I will suggest is. There are simply too many variables. We we lack the processing power and the ability to get all those variables into the machine fast enough to compute them before they've already changed. Are you kind of talking about how when someone comes to you and they're like, I want you to guarantee me a return without any risk because you're a magician and you can see the future? Like, well, I mean, that, that rarely happens, believe it or not. Most, I mean, people that do that, they're it's really obvious. It's like, hey, I've got $1,000. Can you make me a millionaire by the end of the month? And and I'm like, that's the kind of stuff they make jokes in movies about. But I, that doesn't happen in real life. And there's a very simple reason why. Okay. Look, if we were ca- like, if I was capable of doing that, then I know an exploit in the market. Mm-hmm. Like there is something that isn't supposed to be there that I know about. It may be perfectly legal, right? So it's, I'm not saying I'm breaking the rules to do it, but there's an exploit that hasn't been discovered by the rest of the marketplace. I need to exploit that as much as possible in the hopes that the market doesn't find out about it. Because if I share it with everybody else, the exploit will disappear. 
mm-hmm. right? It will work its way out of the system because everybody will figure it out. They will all start doing it, and it will no longer work because everybody sees it, right? It's mm-hmm. like if a pitcher tells everybody that what they're going to pitch beforehand, the batter has a much better better chance of hitting the ball, right? <laughs> it's like you're you're telegraphing to the market, and the market will respond by taking away the advantage, right? So nobody does that, and this is why every time I see like some online thing promising, you know, look at our ten best stocks ever, and you'll be, you know, make a fortune. And I look at this and go, or subscribe to our newsletter, and right. then you like, don't have like to everybody hire that someone. subscribes to our newsletter, you know, can Gets all buy Bill Gates. Yeah. Like this is, it's not real stuff. Okay, now maybe there's real research. You know, there, there are real research firms that go out and, and make an honest effort to pick good stuff but if it works so well you wouldn't need to sell the advice <laughs> yeah or or you you know you shouldn't be selling that type of exaggeration okay mm, yeah. because again it's back to the sequence of returns we talked about at the casino right can you really get every stock to double in value every time you do it for 50 trades in a row you'd be pretty darn rich if you could yeah you would you would have so much money it would be obscene but what folks don't understand is that as soon as another player enters the game it's an auction marketplace it changes the game Mm -hmm. so you can say well academically it would have happened this way it would have happened until you joined and then it would have changed the outcome right it's like chaos theory or like every like infinity time loop problem that you've had in all these movies where you go back it's back to the future like oh my gosh marty went back in time changed the future kind of like the matrix almost <laughs> you don't don't mock the matrix <laughs> oh. but that you know what i mean if you could go back in time and do it that way time doesn't do the same thing going forward so every time they give you this this mock list i'm like you know every now and then somebody will be like here look i'll show you my results here's my brokerage statement i said okay and what do we see everywhere? There's always a common disclosure on all legitimate financial pieces. Past performance is not a indication of future yeah, it's performance. It's no guarantee yeah. of future results. That's it, right? And so when we talk about this, I, I, if I could get it through investors' heads, like you're not going to know, right? You're going to have a very strong indication. Mm-hmm. But you don't get to a probability of 100%, right? If you do, then you're you're trading something else away, right? Oh, well, I can guarantee that you won't lose money. So, well, you aren't guaranteeing it. You're going to use, a, you know, somebody else will make that guarantee. And what they're going to do is they're going to trade you a defined outcome for like the an, risk that they'll take on their side. Like an insurance product. An insurance product says, well, you guarantee that you'll get 5% return on your insurance annuity product year after year. Okay. You'll also guarantee that if inflation goes up to 10%, you're still, still making five. only making five. Right? If, if the markets go down to negative 20, you're making five. If they well, go up to 50, you're making five. And if you want to access the money, right, <laughs> then you're going to have, there's other you know strings attached right mm-hmm. there's going to be taxes and other elements at play here so you remember when it comes to risk in the investment markets this is one of my favorites right there are only three things that you can do with risk write them down unless you're driving make a mental note right you can manage risk you can transfer risk or you can ignore risk 
which is really just bad management. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Ignoring risk is like, well, I'm managing it horribly. <laughs> okay, that's what it is. So you either manage the risk or you transfer it. That's all you can do with it. So you, you own it yourself, you take it on, or you transfer it. And that's what insurance largely does, or mm-hmm. derivatives You know, in the options marketplace. What are those? They're insurance-like contracts. Sure. Right. Maybe not issued through an insurance company, but they are insurance-like in the in their structure and behavior. Right. So, do you want to talk at all about the options and how it's kind of like insurance, or is that just going to get us too far in the weeds? I I feel like that's a weeds conversation. Maybe we should talk about that next week. Do like I mean, an options type. You know, we could. The, the The thing about that whole environment, right? Like mm-hmm. the whole derivatives landscape is. Uh, you know, Warren Buffett has a famous quote for that. He said, derivatives uh, are weapons of mass financial destruction. Yeah. Right? And it's because they, they're built on products that don't necessarily exist in real life. Like, you know, you can have a stock that is a real thing, then an option on the stock, which is a derivative of that, but then you can have an option on the option. And now Ooh. you've got a second-order derivative. Well, that's, yeah. that's a house of cards and leverage now. Mm-hmm. And I, if, if you pull the wrong the card out from the bottom, right. the whole thing falls off. And if, on and if you don't know what it, an option is, let's keep it really simple. Most people think of options, and with stocks, you're like, wait, a, how does that? You've heard of options before. They're on houses. Like, hey, you have an option to buy it for this price. I'll let you buy my house. I'll give you the first right of refusal. That's kind of what an option is. Mm, right of first that's a good refusal at a price. It. Okay. The thing is, it's only for a limited amount of time. Mm-hmm. Okay, you have the right of first refusal for the next six months, and the right of first refusal, I will make it for this price. Okay, that's what you're doing. You have an option now. Mm-hmm. You have an option to buy that house for a, for a price and a time. So if the housing market falls out and the house you agreed to buy for four hundred thousand goes to one hundred and fifty, you probably aren't gonna. Yeah, your option is basically worthless. Right. Right. You're better off just to not buying it. Well, you're better off buying the house on the free market at one hundred and fifty. Yep. Than using your option to overpay for it. There you go. Right. But if the housing market explodes, yeah, it goes and up it's to a million, million. Then you're like, hey, I can buy a million dollar house for four hundred thousand dollars. Score. Everyone's now Googling how to trade options now. We've yeah. Well, again, <laughs> derivatives can be weapons of mass financial destruction. Do not tread lightly into this because mm-hmm. the thing about options is they are related to something else, but they also have a couple of critical elements at play here. One of them being how volatile is the market? Yeah. Because that's how much it's going to, how much is somebody willing to, how much they're going to have to pay somebody to guarantee a price when the price is moving all the time. Okay. Mm-hmm. It costs them more, so they have to look at the volatility of the stock and how long does that guarantee last. So now you have time as well. So you end up with uh, what we call time decay and implied volatility and the very and, and some other factors that go in that too, including volume and uh, so forth. So it's you're you're taking an already complex world and adding more layers of complexity to it. Okay, I'm just saying. Tread cautiously. Mm-hmm. I and like so that warning. That is why, and and you know there are people that are very successful with it. And just so you're aware, there are ways to do option purchasing with relative safety too. Mm-hmm. Right, you do not need to take on tremendous risk treading into that market. 
But you do need to be aware of how those risks work and that structuring absolutely matters. Like what you choose to buy, when and how, and the price you pay for it will change your exposure to market risk, potentially mm -hmm. radically. So you don't don't just like you know go willy nilly into this. And a lot of people uh, pay the education tax, right? Mm -hmm. Learning is expensive. You'll make mistakes. It'll cost you money. So anyway, um, this whole this whole thing was you know the original premise of the show was to talk about you know what's priced in the markets or not, and it was all on when is good news good and when is it. When, when is good news bad, right? And I feel like I really lost the moorings on this. I can bring it home, but we better take our, let's take our last break. Don't worry, David. You're going to hit a home run. We'll, we'll, we'll take the last break. When we come back, is, it, is good good or is good bad? We'll try to sort it out right after this. Stick around. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. You got True Wealth on News Radio 93.9 FM and 1240 KQEN. All right, gang, welcome back to the home stretch of the True Wealth Show, where I have had now uh, listeners remind us that, boy, are we on some rabbit trails today. And that is true. So let's, let's get back okay. to the original question. When is, a, <laughs> when is good news good and when is good news bad? Okay. Give and, me an example of when right. good news is bad. So Let's start there. This is a this happened back in like 2018. Okay. okay. And what was happening is the markets were starting to improve. The Federal Reserve said, "Hey, we're going to start lightening up on our bond buying program." They went through something called Operation Twist where they were changing the duration of their bond portfolio that they've been adding to, and they talked about starting to raise interest rates. The markets kind of freaked out. Okay? And then a series of economic events occurred that were would be perceived as negative, typically. It's bad news. Mm -hmm. But the markets went up. And the reason was because the Federal Reserve responded by saying, because of these changes in the economy, we are going to stop raising rates and go back to our trend of keeping the quantitative rates lower easing. and quantitative easing, mm -hmm. which effectively meant we are going to Bring the punch bowl back. Right? And everyone wanted a drink. Right? And they said, <laughs> oh, oh, we, you know, first it was the, 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 the punch bowl, the spiked punch bowl of free money for the economy <laughs> or cheap money for the economy. And then they started to take it away and everybody went, boo, boo, I like the punch bowl. Right? <laughs> and so the bad news indicated that the Federal Reserve could push more cheap money into the economy for longer. Mm -hmm. And the markets went up in response. And we saw price-to-earnings ratios begin to climb above historic norms as that occurred. So that's an example, though, where bad economic news meant that the Fed would have more accommodative behaviors, and it led to what we called the TINA market. I haven't heard that one before. TINA is there is no alternative. You couldn't put money into commodities, right, because you had a, a strengthening dollar with interest rates declining, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I guess I guess the dollar was it's, everybody else was was pretty weak too. It's not really that giving you the opposite, but but you you didn't want to buy bonds because rates were super low, right? 
we weren't in an inflationary environment because the economy was not growing with the bad news, right? Economic shrinking. So it wasn't inflationary at the time. And the job market was iffy. So that's part of why commodities weren't attractive, because there wasn't inflation. Interest rates were already super low because of quantitative easing. So you didn't want to buy bonds because you had duration risk in bonds. So you started looking around, and, and you, could, you could buy real estate. In hindsight, that ended up being a pretty good purchase for a lot of people. And you could buy the stock market. And it was because there was nowhere else to go, right? There is no alternative. So stocks got a bid is what we called it. That was a, people wanted to buy stocks. Do you feel like we're still kind of living in that environment where it's like bonds still aren't attractive? Where else is the money going to go right now? So, yes, yeah. I think that is still part of it. And that is what is continuing to make this market a challenging place right mm -hmm. now is that when you look at where your opportunity sets are, interest rates rising tends to mean the U.S. has a stronger uh, currency. Uh, well, it's not that that's not always the U.S. currency is strengthening over other currencies right now, even though we're raising our rates. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't expect the dollar to strengthen with our rates going up like this, but it has which means that uh, it's not good for our trade balance. And so it, you, you find yourself going, well, I don't want you know, to buy bonds if rates are going to go up because they're forcing them up, right? Mm -hmm. But I don't want to necessarily buy commodities if the dollar is strengthening. I can't, it, you know, money's costing more for real estate. It's already expensive. I'm back to the Tina thing again. And you go, well, now what? And again, I'm not advising you one way or the other about buying stocks. I'm just saying this is the economic landscape that we're dealing with. And so when, like right now, Good economic news is good, but if it's too good, it's bad. Mm -hmm. Because that means the Fed has to raise rates now. Right. Right? Yeah. So what we need is good enough economic news that we still feel like we're getting a soft landing and the Fed's you know, going to engineer an economic soft landing, no recession, right? Mm. So good enough to not be recessionary, but not so good that the Fed has to raise rates so even more. We're kind of crying because they took the punch bowl away. Oh, the punch bowl being gone is where it's like the, it's dumped a, it's all a, over your white carpet. Exactly. That's what it feels it's no like. No punch bowl now. It's just tears, right? <laughs> so, tears and stains you can't get out of the carpet. And 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 that's it. Is now the mess. Now the cleanup. We've been saying for a long time that this was coming, right? This this should not be a surprise. These high fuel prices, the, the, you know, it's. Yes, the war did impact it because Russia was part of the supply chain, but we've also shut down a lot of our own domestic production. Everybody knows this. This isn't a political statement. You know, the sources of fuel were changed. The United States went from a net exporter to a net importer in the last couple of years, and fuel prices are showing mm -hmm. that. And there's a host of other economic problems that we're now contending with. All of these put us in the position of, well, good news is good unless it's too good of news, and then it's not good. Right. And now you find yourself, well, where is the line? I said, I don't know either. And that's why it's so difficult. We say, how much of this is the market priced in? Well, the market is still trying to handicap whether or not the Fed will successfully engineer an economic soft landing. Now, I will go out on a limb and suggest that more than likely, the answer is no. And I it's mean, not because of a lack of effort. I mean, there's right. There's over 400. I think there's like 450 PhDs studying this for the Federal Reserve System. Mm -hmm. Right, tons of smart people. The vast majority of which I believe are well intended. Nevertheless, this is hard. Remember, infinity variables changing all the time. 
You just you, don't get it right. nailed. You throw a war in there right. on the coattails of COVID messing up supply chains, and right. it's like a storm. And, and you know, there could be other things that could still happen. Mm-hmm. There's natural disasters. There's geopolitical events. There's other pandemic-level events. There are lots of things that we would call black swans that can mess this up. So, yeah, how, how, good of, how much good news versus too good? I don't know either. I just know that that's the world that we live in right now. And as investors, we need to tread cautiously because this is not your typical market. And if you're not good at treading water, put on the pool floaties. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> and, and it, is okay, it is okay <laughs> to manage risk. Sometimes when you lack clarity, you need to manage the risk of your strategy. But I would say, don't let your emotions wag the dog. If you are in a spot where your emotions are challenging you as an investor, get an outside perspective and make sure that you pump the brakes, okay? And that is decent advice, so get a second opinion. We're out of time, Matt, just like that. Uh, How do folks reach us if they would like a second opinion themselves? Give us a ring, 541-375-0898. All right, gang, you can also check us out online at info at littlejohnfs.com for email, or just go to littlejohnfs.com and you're all there. Uh, Until next time, we're out of here. This has been David Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. And you've been listening to True Wealth on News Radio 93.9 FM and 1240 KQEA. The preceding program was paid for by Little John Financial Services. The opinions and views expressed may not reflect those of Brook Communications, its affiliates, or its employees.